Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Clifton, how's it going? <laughs> it's going, man. It's going, Matt. It's good to meet you. How about yourself? Yeah, it's good to finally meet. Uh, um, like like all of us during the last three years, I feel like I know you just by by following your your story on Twitter and your your podcast and and all the cool stuff you're doing. Um, and you were in town a couple weeks ago, and and I reached out then because I've been wanting to ask you to do this show for forever like I feel like the last couple of years ever since I saw you give that uh, that short speech at the Mises Institute I'm like oh this this guy's digging a little bit deeper than just being pissed off about lockdowns and I thought that was really cool yeah yeah you know it's funny because uh, 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 Jeff Dice who uh, is formerly of the uh, Mises Institute uh, asked me to do uh, the speech for the young for the students there in the program and I'm just like what on earth do I, as a as a canceled actor, have to? Um, what what value can I provide to these um, economic students? And um, I was actually quite nervous about it, even though like I don't I don't you know I'm not really afraid of public speaking. Obviously, I made a career of being in the public and in the public eye and being on stage. But um, you know, I just had no idea. So literally, you know, and, and if you can if you watch the speech, I'm still reading mostly from my phone because I just finished it maybe an hour before I was meant to give the uh, the presentation because I was just, I just spent the week freaking out like what the hell am I going to say? And um, you know, and, and so the response that the speech got uh, was very surprising to me. But you know, that's sort of how I am in a way. You know, people. I went to did a show where someone asked me afterward, "Do you have any idea how good you are?" And I was like, "No, you know, I think." <laughs> Part of part of as an entertainer, you uh, you have to fight to keep your self-esteem at like an average level because, you know, you, you hear how, how, you know, you're all you're often criticized for every little thing. If it's not by professional critics, it's by directors or, you know, other, um, you know, haters that you have. Um, so I sort of did the speech and I was like, it was cool. And a lot of cool people out there, a beautiful campus out at Auburn. Um, the kids were you know, very sharp and bright. And um, I got to see some people that uh, I've been watching on YouTube from afar for, for a few years. So that was kind of cool. But uh, outside of that, I just kind of um, went on with my life, uh, you know, waiting tables <laughs> and uh, didn't think uh, much of it. So the response that it got was uh, was very surprising to me. I have a theory that that music critics um, must be a lot like music critics who I view as, as very frustrated um, even bitter musicians that didn't make it, so they spent all their time shitting on on musicians who in, were better, luckier, all of the above. And I think there's this whole class of people that um, criticize, and then there's a class of people that just do stuff. And and that that may be true in the theater world as well. You would know better. Well, I mean, it depends. Um, you know, there is one. Oh gosh, and his name escapes me. He's one of the, the the better critics that we've that we had. He wrote a book called Hot Ticket, um, but he was the New York Times theater critic for you know a really long time. I can't believe I can't remember his name, but you know he was he was pretty amazing, and and his criticism came out of a genuine love for the medium and for the genre. Um, but then you have, you know, I think it's more accurate if you're talking about bloggers and social media people you know like i was just listening to a, a funny uh, uh a youtube video on a channel that i like um and they were talking about the response to the mario movie i don't know if you've seen the mario movie but you know the, the super mario film has you know become this weird um polarizing thing in, in the quote-unquote culture wars and so um there's a publication called the mary sue who apparently wrote this article uh, about how the character of Princess Peach is problematic uh, because she's a girl boss and she's 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 too perfect, so she doesn't have to work for anything. I'm like these, these people complain about anything, but then you then you dig into the writer, and uh, you know, and she's talking about in my master's uh, program for writing, we were always told to avoid these. And I'm like, ah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there it is. You didn't write the character. You you for whatever reason, you're sitting here writing for the Mary Sue. And now you're angry and you're and you're lashing out at what this other these other writers have done. So, you know, it, it, it is funny how it works out. But you can't really listen to any of these people anyway, because everyone has a different a different opinion. Um, you know, my 
first job out of grad school was uh, I did Shakespeare in the Park, and it was a star-studded production of Twelfth Night. And at the end of the um, the run, they give you the press packet, which is a, a collection of all the reviews. And um, you know, they, they're just all over the place. There are actors that I thought were brilliant who, you know, they were like, I wish they, I wish she had sang more, or you know, she seemed too old, or she seemed too cerebral. And then there were actors that I thought that, that I thought were terrible, and they were like, "He's brilliant in the role." And da, 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 you know, all these superlatives. So it's all just nonsense and smoke and mirrors, and you know, the, the publicity machine. So you got to kind of stay focused and do what you do, because it's just all it's all stupid and nonsense. <laughs> Speaking of uh, nonsense and smoke and mirrors, uh, you were here a couple weeks ago with with various members who I know and love from Team Reality, trying to. Um, I guess talk some sense into into members of of Congress. How did that go? Um, decidedly mixed results. Um, you know, the generally speaking, the um, the Republican representatives were far more um, open to what we have to say. The Democrats um, were not so much. Um, there was one in particular, and uh, I, I can't remember her name, but we I think we met with one of this representative's staffers, and. Um, she was so, I've never seen anything like it. So you, you had two mothers there and these aren't like, you know, politicians or professional communicators. They're just, they're regular people um, telling about their experience during the uh, the pandemic and, and what the, and the sort of um, cost that these measures extracted on them. And then you had um, a, a literal public health expert, uh, a woman named Kate Harmer, who, you know, as a master's in public health and she's on team reality and she's like, you know, this is nonsense. She can tell you why what we did was nonsense. And then you had this little, this precious, precious little boy um, who was uh, seven years old, who was just relating, you know, without guile, without sort of any agenda as kids do, you know, just saying, you know, I had to wear a mask and da, 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 da. He's just telling his experience. And this, this woman uh, from Connecticut, um, I, I nicknamed her, nicknamed her the Connecticut, well, you know, see you next Tuesday, um, because she, was like, okay, can we just do this right now? Because, you know, we have a 130 coming in and her body language, you know, her arms were crossed, were, were crossed the entire time. Um, she, she kept checking her phone. She was cutting people off. And I just, I was just stunned into silence because uh, she was just so obviously disinterested and didn't hide it at all and dismissive. And um, that was sort of the general idea that we, or the general uh, vibe we got from a lot of the Democrats was they, they just didn't they they're completely uninterested uh, now now we also spoke to representatives from uh, Florida and from Georgia and um, they were much more amenable there was one woman I was really impressed with who was also a staffer but um, you know she was smart and, and it's funny because for me I keep diminishing myself as you know as I heard before, as you you know probably heard when I talk about the response to the Mises speech because I said you know what man no one really cares about some actor who lost his uh, his career, um, you know, because they're just going to call him an anti-vaxxer, even though, you know, it's like, you know, oh, so I don't wear beige shirts. Does that mean I'm anti-shirt? You know what I mean? It's so stupid. Um, so no one's going to really care. But, you know, the, this particular person and um, and the other Republican uh, rep that we met, you know, it's like, well, no one should have to lose their career um, because of this kind of a thing. And, you know, we're, we're um, doing an oversight committee and yada, yada, yada. So. Um, it gave me a glimmer of hope, actually, because um, despite all of our cynicism about Washington, which I think is very, very well founded, um, there are some genuinely good people that that work there and um, that, that, that they're smart. And it seems like they want to do what's right for their constituents. So that was the um, the the drop of rain in the oasis that was our, our D.C. trip. But the, the biggest part of it was get, we get, was getting to meet um, other members of Team Reality and kind of hang out for a little bit. Uh, that, that was the biggest takeaway from the trip. But uh, it was a, it was a fun experience, um, all, all told. If you're watching this show, you're probably wondering, is there a way I can support liberty and improve my life at the same time? Well, there is. Pack Crest Botanicals is a libertarian-owned company that makes botanical CBD products. I started using CBD oil to help me when I'm trying to sleep, and my three annoying cats won't leave me alone. Now I can just ignore them for a solid eight hours and wake up feeling great. Not only are they run by our friends in the Liberty Movement, Pack Crest Botanicals also uses high-quality organic ingredients in everything they make. They sell tinctures, edibles, topicals, and botanical vapes. 
CBD oil can help with pain, insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, stress, arthritis, and more. Use discount code FREETHEPEOPLE to save 25% of your order. And if you select Free the People as your charitable organization at checkout, a portion of your purchase will be donated to us to help fight for freedom. Yeah, and, and, and I will say, like, it's, it's fun to meet um, members of Team Reality that you sort of knew um, from afar through, through technology. Um, because early on, and I'm, I'm, you must have felt this way even more than I did, but I, I'm, a, I'm a libertarian that just assumed that all libertarians would immediately realize the practical and colossal damage we would do, um, particularly to people at the margins, by, by locking down the economy. And I, I found myself feeling quite lonely. And I, it was, it was otherworldly. But you, you of course, were in the, the bubble of, of New York City and, and the arts world where your views were were profoundly heretical. Oh God, you know, and and the thing about it is that I I was thinking about this yesterday. I I, I came my when I really began to um, I guess rethink my position because I was full on COVIDian for the first few months of um, of 2020. You know, I was wiping down my groceries and my mail. I was carrying around a little a little <laughs> a little paper towel in my back pocket so I wouldn't have to touch any. I mean, you know, I mean everyone everything is already in New York anyway, but um, you know, I was, I was I was being made fun of on the subway and in public for masking and gloving in public before everyone else, you know, demanded that you do so. Um, you know, so I, I took it very, very seriously. Um, but I think over time, my objection to what we were being asked to do came from the perspective of a, of a bleeding heart liberal artist, you know, because I was like, okay, well, we're, we're covering our faces, you know, which is one of our primary modes of expression and communication. We're being told to, um, quote unquote, socially distance, and it's, it's Orwellian because it's anti-social distancing. There's nothing social about it. Um, and we're being told to, to isolate ourselves and to stay home and to not see our families. Um, you know, all these places are, are closing down. I mean, they closed the gyms for like six months. Meanwhile, the liquor stores remained open. And, you know, there, were, there was no real sense to it. But I came to it from a perspective of everything that we were being asked to do was completely anti-human, you know, and, and um, I sort of romanticized it in a way about, you know, this idea of people are missing out on first love and, you know, hanging out with their friends um, and celebrating after, after a, you know, a triumph at work or at a game or something. All these social experiences, uh, to say nothing of what happened to children, you know, that's where I really began to, to, um, to come at it from. And um, as you said, you know, you just, you're not allowed really to have any sort of differing opinion in the arts in general. And, and it really accelerated after Trump was elected. And I mean, I have to say, even before that, I mean, my I was critical of the uh, of the Obama administration, and I voted for him in 2008. I mean, I, I, you know, when he was announced, I was at a bar in downtown Manhattan. And I called my grandmother, that's the first thing I did when he was announced president elect, and we cried on the phone together. It was a very, very, um, it was a very powerful experience and moving experience. But as a as a president, as time went on, um, I was, uh, let's say, unimpressed. And my my critiques of him came from the left of him. And um, but even then, people were like, is Clifton a Republican? I'm like, no, <laughs> you, you know, not not at all. The furthest the, the, the furthest thing from it, you know, so there's already this hostility in in the industry. And, and you know, if you think Hollywood is bad, I mean, the, the theater scene in New York is about 10 times worse. It's more concentrated, I say. And um, and then Trump came around and people completely lost their minds. I mean, you know, I, I know from the outside people saw it, but, uh, you know, internally just going to an audition, you know, people would, would completely stop and just it was really unprofessional, actually, because, you know, if you're going in for to, to, to CBS, and you're auditioning for a job which could change your life. It's a series regular, a series lead or something. But the casting director wants to stop and say, oh, can, I can't believe what's happening to our country right now. Did you see this headline? Da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, I, I saw it. I think you're overreacting to it. I mean, I'm thinking, to my, you know, internally. And so, you know, I had to like often tap dance and, you know, and dance around it. And, and but I'm trying to concentrate because, you know, I'd like to make a job where I can make $30,000 a week, please, and pay off my student loans. Thank you very much. So there's already this huge, huge um, 
I mean, I call it a cult, uh, you know, sort of cult-like mentality where you, you sort of have to shut off your brain in order to maintain a career. I mean, I bit my tongue so many times. So, you know, given all of that context, um, when you're talking about people who are, who are propagandized every day, A, they hate Trump. And so I think a big part of their pandemic response was um, driven by anti-Trumpism. Um, and they're also propagandized to believe that we're in the middle of a new black death. So anyone who disagrees with these uh, public health dictates from from luminaries like Anthony Fauci and the uh, and the fantastically talented Deborah Burks, uh, the scarf lady, um, obviously you want people to die. So there were all these sort of factors going into it, and um, and even you know I remember talking to my former manager uh, about um, the um, Andrew Cuomo fiasco with the nursing homes, and she dismissed it as, you know, a sort of right wing conspiracy, let alone, you know, but then like a year later, his own attorney general, Letitia James, you know, put out a 75 page report detailing that, you know, there was malfeasance that happened and they tried to cover it up for political reasons. So, you know, these people, they, they, they don't listen. They're, they're in their own bubble and they accuse everyone else of being in an echo chamber. And, uh, you know, it's just it's like you said, you know, at the beginning, it's just it's very isolating. And you're like, I, I can't no one no one is being reasonable about this no one's being sensible about it at all and uh, that's part of the reason why i'm in i am where i am today but but you are also part of the 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 revolution of sensibility and and i think um it's becoming a little bit safer getting back to capitol hill my my friend thomas massey and i think you guys went to see the congressman from kentucky there were there was a time in 2020 when he was the only guy wanting a recorded vote on this this massive uh, societal changing legislation and at least on the republican side he's he's become almost normal and it's become at least safe for republicans to acknowledge that that a lot of that stuff was a mistake but but the democrats and this this is a a theory that I think is is less persuasive to me than it was in 2020. Like, once we lock down, and you, I would start with criticizing Trump on this. Once he locked down, once politicians locked down, I could never figure out what the political exit strategy was because if it works for a week, it's going to work for a month, and if it works for a month, we better do it for a year, and and we're not safe yet. And so, like, you think of it this this political equilibrium where we're not a single politician can acknowledge you know what that probably wasn't the right thing to do or at least acknowledge maybe maybe we should stop doing it now because it doesn't seem to to be that effective um they, they couldn't do it but at least for republicans they're they're sort of acknowledging the things that they got wrong and they got plenty wrong as well yeah totally no it's, it's funny that um because thomas uh massey and i we we follow each other on Twitter. And, you know, I messaged him, I said, uh, you know, you're one of the few politicians, maybe the only politician that I have any, <laughs> any sort of regard for. Um, uh, you know, it's a shame that I, I, I missed him when we were on Capitol Hill, I would have loved to have been present for his, his viral moment with Jamal Bowman, which was uh, just hysterically uh, uh, clownish. Um, but I think part of the the issue, you know, is that there was an environment created by by the press. Uh, I think the media is such a big, big uh, factor in a lot of this, where they they created this environment, this culture where, you know, everyone had to be afraid, and anyone who didn't, um, you know, sign off on any of this was uh, was basically a granny killer, and um, you know, and, and it is interesting right now to see the the people acknowledge like, well, you know, Trump had a big hand in this as well. Um, you know, the, the beating his chest about warp speeding the vaccines. Um, I, for one, I never supported the stimulus, uh, not not even once. But I could see where the where the tide was turning, because, again, the the environment that was created made it impossible to to do otherwise, even though you know, I mean, I'm you know, I'm some I'm just a dumb actor, but I could see. But the people I was watching we're saying, well, you know, if you flood the market with currency, it's going to devalue it and uh, it's going to create problems down the road. Um, but no one was trying to hear any of that. But there was there was no there was no effort to make any cost benefit analysis. I mean, Trump, to his credit, was, you know, was saying that, uh, you know, we by I remember around Easter, he was like, you know, we need to be opening up. And um, and it was weird to see him criticized because they call him, uh, you know, a fascist and a Nazi and authoritarian for like, you know, for his entire presidency. 
And um, yet when people were calling for like a nationwide lockdowns and, and nationwide mask mandates and these kinds of things, he, he didn't do it. Um, so there is there is that. But, um, you know, I, I do think that, um, you know, you, you can't look back with rose colored glasses and pretend that there was no culpability. And, and, and um, you know, listening to people like Scott Atlas, for instance, who was, you know, on the inside. I mean, he, I haven't read his book yet, but he has some podcasts out and, and some speeches talking about what he experienced inside the Trump White House. And you wish that he had shown um, more backbone and just and gotten rid of Fauci and gotten rid of Burks. Apparently, Burks was was actually was was actually the main problem was Dr. Burks. Um, you you wish he had surrounded himself with with better people and uh, and listened to people like Scott Atlas instead of um, these these ridiculous nincompoop uh, bureaucrats like Fauci and Burks. It's really you know it's it's I was gonna say it's really a shame, but that would be an understatement, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 a transformational tragedy, I suspect, and and I think the reason you and I are still talking about this is that we need to make sure that whatever mistakes were made, we acknowledge them and we never ever ever do that again, which which is a nice segue to to the the documentary that you are starring in. Um, tell me about that project and and how you got involved. Right. So um, we actually are premiering a, a new documentary. We want it to be a docu-series. It's called Follow the Science. Um, so the pilot episode is called Lockdown, subtitled uh, Lockdowns Go Viral. Um, it's a crowdfunded, donor-based, uh, nonpartisan um, documentary. Um, it features, <clears throat> it features um, commentary from people like, uh, like Jay Bhattacharya, Zuby, the popular um, the, um, viral sensation, um, Sidney Watson, myself, uh, Nick Hudson. And um, it really, it's a very interesting project because it, it approaches the, the question of whether or not lockdowns saved lives, but it, it does so from the perspective of the scientific method. Um, it, it, you know, we, we start out, it's very accessible, it's very family friendly, and it really, and my character is sort of an everyman who comes in with these preconceived notions of, well, you know, we had to do these lockdowns. And, um, the part of the narrative of the documentary, if you can call it that, is the application of the method to investigate these questions and or this question, this hypothesis. And, um, you know, we come to, uh, you know, our, our conclusion by the end of it. And, um, you know, I was I was reached out to by uh, the Sound Mind creative group who's who's producing this project. And I think it's just because, you know, people saw that I was one of the few people because um, it's artists, um, I, I, what I, I believe, who make up the Sound Mind creative group and, um, you know, artists, filmmakers, all these kinds of things. And they saw what I what had happened to me and what uh, and my very vocal opposition to all this uh, nonsense. And um, they got me involved and they wrote a nice sort of narrator slash host part for me. And um, so it, it's really about taking the audience on a journey. Um, and exploring these questions and, and really having the conversations that should have been had at the beginning of this entire thing. And um, so we have a premiere um, very shortly in Orlando. Um, Tom Woods is going to be there um, and uh, we're going to see how it plays out. You know, we if you go to follow the science uh, series dot com, you could give uh, give money again. It's all crowdfunded. And um, we want to turn it into a whole series, an actual series, where we tackle um, each subject, masks, vaccines, um, all kinds of things, school closures. So, um, and it seems like the environment right now is really ripe for this kind of discussion. As you were saying, you know, you're starting to see some people uh, take accountability. Um, the press, um, you know, bless their hearts, is beginning to report on things that people like me have been saying for years about, you know, natural immunity and the damage caused by school closures, um, even the harms caused by these mRNA products. So it seems like now the sort of environment is more receptive for a for a project like Follow the Science to really make an impact. And, uh, and we want to, you know, give it to distributors and have them, you know, put it out there. So, you know, but that's all the, the producer and director stuff that they're working on that. So I just sort of, uh, you know, get on camera and say words. You, you, you mentioned the media and like, there's some something magical that's happened because they were all sort of shuffling lockstep and, and certainly the artistic community, the Hollywood community, um, everybody 
was sort of mindlessly being apparatchiks for the science as defined by Fauci and Burks. Um, but some, something is going on with, with the media because they are starting to acknowledge, um, like we're, we're now allowed to talk about the possibility that maybe um, this virus didn't originate in a wet market. And, and for, for two years, that was, that was, uh, it was, it was literally a sin to say such a thing and you would be, you would be sent to Twitter purgatory for that. Um, what, what happened? Like, did, did we sprinkle anti-zombie dust on the world and suddenly we're allowed to think for ourselves again? Oh, I have no idea, but I do think it's funny. I mean, that the lab leak hypothesis and how that was completely dismissed and, and as a conspiracy theory. And if you, and if you suggested that, then you were this, you know, sinophobic racist. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, are you telling me that uh, the idea that there was a, a lab, um, you know, and I'm not someone who's saying that it was like the deliberately released as a bioweapon or whatever. I, you know, it, it could be, it could easily be a simple human error, you know, um, and then you sort of go down the rabbit hole and you say, you know, people kind of take stuff from labs all the time. Like it could be any sort of, any sort of thing. I mean, you're not really implicating anyone, you know, except for maybe, you know, people who are funding it, which includes uh, white people in the United States, by the way, uh, government officials. But I'm like, you're telling me the lab leak theory is less racist than the idea that these savage slanted at slanted eyed, you know, Chinese people are eating bats, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and all their exotic food. I mean, come on, it's so ridiculous. And what I noticed at the time, by the way, is that, um, you know, the, these Chinese propaganda machines were, were, were using um, our language against us. They were also saying, well, this is racist. And um, so, I mean, they understand us better than we do. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the shift is. Um, you know, maybe the, the fog of war is clearing. Um, it, it's, it's tough to say what, what's, what happens. I mean, I'm, you know, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that uh, Joe Biden decided to, you know, announce the end of the emergency or the national emergency, at least. Um, it, it's it really is tough to say, but um, you know I, I don't I don't think it's an accident. Um, you know I don't want to get um, you know sort of conspiratorial about it, but uh, you know what what is to be gained now? You know the damage has been done, so now they're telling the truth, and now you know people are being vindicated. But what's what's strange? I mean, you mentioned you know Hollywood and the arts community; um, they're not budging. Um, Hollywood recently, um, maybe about a month or so ago, they announced that they're finally allowing their COVID protocols to expire, but they're still kind of, there's still structures in place where they can impose these kinds of things. I mean, there was a, uh, there was a, an article on Deadline, with Deadline, for those who don't know, is a, a trade, a publication where all the big news about, you know, about castings and, and executive hires and all these kinds of things, um, show pickups, uh, orders and that kind of thing are, um, are discussed and reported on. And in the uh, comment section on the article where they said that these protocols are going to expire, um, you know, there are still people who were saying like, this is not safe and yada, yada, yada. And there's one in particular who said, well, we're still not going to hire um, people who actors who didn't take the vaccine because um, they exercise very poor judgment. And we, we just won't say that's the reason we're not going to hire them. Um, so it's been really remarkable. But in the theater, like I said before, Hollywood is bad. The theater is 10 times worse. I've seen no announcements whatsoever that these things are going to expire. Um, I've seen, you know, no effort to sort of move out of the pandemic phase. I'm told under the table that theaters are no longer asking for um, for vaccine cards. Um, by the way, a lot of actors were just lying anyway, like big surprise, right? Uh, an industry full of um, desperate people who will do anything to get famous. Um, you know, that allows people like Harvey Weinstein to run rampant, you know, th th there's more than one liar. So how are they even enforcing any of this? But, um, you know, it's, but even, you know, back in August, I think it was of last year, the CDC quietly came out and said that people, you know, you, you, there's no need to distinguish now, you know, how you treat um, vaxxed versus unvaxxed people. And again, people were still do you know segregating people by vaccine status i mean it's unbelievable and they, they just they won't let it go for whatever reason they won't let it go to the, to the extent where i i feel like or i wonder if there's some sort of corruption or or something at play because when you think about you know artists and and they're supposed to be these you know these revolutionaries who go against the status quo but yet and they hate big pharma i mean bernie sanders is still writing op-eds in the guardian today 
about, well, not, you know, today, literally, but, you know, to this day about uh, these drug companies and how they're fleecing the American people. But then all of a sudden, you know, when it comes to Pfizer or Moderna, we're just supposed to like, you know, bend over and, and, <laughs> and just and worship um, at, at the altar of, of, um, of these pharmaceutical giants. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, every, every principle that these people claim to stand for, be it, uh, you know, standing up for the poor, the marginalized, standing up for people of color, so on and so forth. They violated every single one of their principles um, because of their COVID hysteria. And um, I don't think they'll ever really acknowledge it. I don't think they'll ever, you know, apologize or look back. Um, I don't know what kind of accountability will be in place for these people, but uh, it's been really, really jaded. Uh, it, it's it's a, been a really jading kind of a process. And, you know, I had a, a former colleague reach out to me recently and said, you know, it's 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 going away and they're not asking for uh, vaccine cards anymore. You're you are appreciated and you are loved. And I'm like, actually, I don't think people really care. I don't think they really give a shit. I think the world um, is, you know, they'll, they'll just go on as they were. Um, there are still people who say to me, you know, that you well, you ruined your own career and whoa, oh, you can't get over this. You, oh, you still can't get past it. Why are you still talking about this? Um, you know, it's just, it's deeply entrenched and, um, you know, I don't know what it's going to take for them to come to their senses. I really don't. Have you ever thought about using CBD oil? You haven't? Well, think about it now. Are you thinking about it? Good, because now there's a way to support freedom and improve your life at the same time. Petcrest Botanicals is a libertarian-owned company that makes a wide variety of botanical CBD products. I use CBD oil to soothe the sore muscles I get from constantly fighting the man here in Washington, D.C. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Petcrest Botanicals uses high-quality organic ingredients in everything they make. And as libertarians, you won't have to worry about them hurting people or taking their stuff. They sell tinctures, edibles, topicals, and botanical vapes. CBD oil can help with pain, insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, stress, arthritis, and more. Use the discount code FREETHEPEOPLE to save 25% of your order, and if you select Free the People as your charitable organization at checkout, a portion of your purchase will be donated to help us keep fighting for freedom. So I was checking out your IMBD page, and, and it's, it's relevant to, you know, I want to ask you if you think you'll be able to ever get back to some semblance of of your career path before COVID, but if you don't mind, brag a little bit about yourself. Like you were, you were doing some some real shit um, until the world ended. Yeah, well, it was cool. You know, typically what happens, you know, there's very rarely any such thing as an overnight success, right? And I got out of um, a conservatory. I went to the NYU graduate acting program, which is one of the big three conservatories, right? The other two are Juilliard and the Yale School of Drama. And when you're talking about NYU, you're talking about, um, you know, people like Deborah Messing, M Michael C. Hall from Dexter, Daniel Day Kim. Um, you're talking about uh, Mahershala Ali, the Oscar winner, uh, Sterling K. Brown, um, Emmy winner, um, Denai Guerrero, who's probably most well known for Black Panther and Walking Dead. Um, these are the kinds of people that uh, have gone through the program. Billy Crudup is another one uh, who's, pretty, who's pretty well known. So... <clears throat> It's one of these programs, which is like you don't go there if you want to get, get your master's to teach at some school in Wyoming or something. You go there because you have ambition and you want to, you know, succeed. And, you know, by the time by it's a three year program. So by the end of my program and I was I was already taking meetings with Warner Brothers, with the CW. Um, I had an agent by the time I got out of there before I got out of there. Um, so but I got out during the recession. So that was a very difficult time. But my first job out of school was in Shakespeare in the Park. You know, I'm in the ensemble, but, you know, I'm working with, um, you know, Anne Hathaway and Audra McDonald, who for people who don't know who she is, she's the most decorated actress, theater actress alive right now. She's literally making history as she speaks. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And, uh, but after that, man, I mean, it's a grind, right? You, you climb your way up the ladder, you gain competence and you gain confidence. You, you, forge the right relationships with different casting directors. You get, you know, the, the right agents, the right representatives who can, um, who can, you know, get you into the right, the, the right doors for the right auditions. And you just plug away for years and years and years oftentimes. And, and it's like, you know, we're all at the casino basically. And, you know, anyone who doesn't uh, acknowledge the role that luck plays in any of this and timing, all that stuff. I mean, there's a British actor who once said that sooner or later, 
all your competition just dies. It's a war of attrition. Um, and, you know, you, you, you stick at it. And, you know, I lived out of a suitcase for a long time and I changed addresses, you know, every few years. I'm renting out rooms and shoebox apartments and, um, you know, traveling around the country and, and honing my craft. And uh, then 2017, things seemed to kind of change. And it was really weird because you're like, what, what the hell is going on? And, uh, you know, I'm working with all these Tony Award winning actors who are coming up to me asking me, who are you? you know, why aren't you famous yet? Um, you know, you can have a, a career if you want. Like this is, you know, and, uh, you know, I made my Broadway debut. And then after that, um, I moved on. I'm working in television, guest starring with people like Scott Bakula and Jimmy Smits. Um, I'm garnering award recognition for the work that I'm doing. And, um, you know, I had a great manager. I had to fire my agent, unfortunately, uh, you know, because we were looking for uh, uh, to make a vertical move on that. Um, you know, but there was one point where I had a, an agent and a manager and a publicist, which is very expensive. And, um, and it was, and it was insane. And I was so busy that I had my, my manager was actually answering emails on my behalf. I just didn't have the time. And, um, and it's, it's feast or famine. And it's, um, and so when you're, you're heating up and, you know, you know, I just find myself working alongside legends like Joel Gray and people like BB Newworth and, um, you know, and, and it was really kind of surreal, but at the same time, you know, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm here, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm here too. I'm working with these people and, um, and it seems like things are finally paying off. And then 2020 came around and, um, that was just, um, everything stopped. And then because I decided to, to make a rational decision about my health, um, you know, that, that kind of made me a pariah, but even on top of that, um, people ask me, you know, would you go back? Um, and I, what would I be going back to really, um, an environment wherein, because I happen not to blame all of my difficulties and problems on white supremacy, I'd be a heretic, as you mentioned before, um, a, a, an environment where I would not be able to, uh, talk about how human beings are a sexually dimorphic species without being labeled a transphobe you know, a, an environment wherein I'd be called an anti-vaxxer, you know, or, or where it's very caustic for a man, if you're a male, um, it's, a, it's an extremely caustic environment. Um, so really, I, I do miss it a lot. And I mean, I've, I did my first play when I was 16, I'm 40 now. Um, it's what I've done all my life. Um, and and I, I certainly miss it. It's what I'm, I feel like I'm kind of built to do it. But what and I, and I was one of the few people that was able to make a success of it. Um, I mean, very few actors are, are actually employed at any given time. Unemployment is the, the rule, not the exception. And um, I, you know, despite all the claims that the industry is racist, um, I, I didn't really have many problems um, getting work for myself. And, um, you know, it, it was a very, the industry was very good to me. But um, now seeing the way that it's... Um, turned out and the way that um, everyone has behaved. Uh, it's just, it's very difficult to sort of let bygones be bygones and then kind of go back to it on top of the socio-political uh, nonsense. Well, I'm hoping that something really disruptive happens. I see that um, Phantom of the Opera just shut down after, I don't know how many decades and I've seen you talk about this, um, you know, broad Broadway, the economic model of Broadway was certainly um, trying to figure out if if it if it still had a place in in Manhattan, but um, the last three years seem to have been, and predict predictably would be devastating for for that community. Do you, is is Broadway dead? Oh, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's if it's dead. Um, and frankly, I don't pay much attention anymore just because, you know, there was an actress I was speaking to uh, named Laura Osnes, who um, had a way bigger career than mine. And um, she got um, outed for not having taken, uh, you know, the vaccine, which was, you know, like early on, but um, she's suing the post for the, the New York Post for defamation over over this ridiculous story, which people still believe to this day, by the way. Um, but we were both just talking about how, you know, I mean, she's in Nashville. We're, we're, we're kind of moving on at this point and don't pay attention. What I will say, though, is that um, the, the times where I have peaked, peaked back in the last few months, um, you know, they, they keep doing 
what's what's one show called i think it was called strange loop or something you know the the big the big gay queer black musical um they're doing um there was some show that uh that the the smiths will and jada had to like buy out the rest of the run because they weren't selling tickets there was a revival of a of a musical called uh, 1776 which is about you know really good score actually and a, and a fun show about the, our the founding fathers and uh, you know all these characters you know uh, uh, jefferson ben franklin's et cetera, et cetera, are characters in the play um if you can find the recording of it i, I highly recommend your listeners uh you know uh, check it out it's really a good score um but they did a a, a gender swapped um, you know, ra racially blind revival of that. And um, even the critic, it was so woke, even the critics slammed that one that for being too woke. Um, I might, by the way, I'm a huge fan. I might, by the way, I'm a huge fan of 1776. Um, and, and I was first in line when I just heard about it. It's like, I'm going to go see that. And then I discovered it was this, this woke thing. And it just like, it just makes me sad. It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't need that in my life because I it's something that I really I really cherish this musical and the music and, and I grew up with that stuff and I loved it I, I, I do wonder if between the one-two punch of their ridiculous pandemic response and the the programming that's happening um, if people are beginning to kind of wake up and and sort of read the tea leaves um, you know I mean it, it costs so much money to put up a musical on Broadway and to produce a show in general. And it's such a, a high risk endeavor and there's a huge chance of failure. And so, you know, the last that I heard the, the big shows like Wicked, Lion King, Hamilton, Book of Mormon, the, the shows that, that typically do a million um, plus in box office a week, the sort of, you know, Star Wars shows or, or Chicago, which is another great one, which, which costs nothing to produce. It's a brilliant, brilliant production. It's been running for forever. You know, those shows are doing fine, but, you know, in terms of new plays, new shows, um, it, it, you know, it might be, I, I mean, like the, the Hugh Jackman um, revival of Music Man, for instance, uh, recently. Um, I don't think that did as well as they had anticipated it would, even though, I mean, Hugh Jackman is a huge, I mean, he's a brilliant performer, a, a big, big star of stage and screen. Um, musical theater, you know, he's very gifted in, in musical theater as well. Um, but, you know, even that show was marred with, you know, he had to call out because, because testing positive for COVID and, you know, and like you said before, the Phantom of the Opera, you know, the longest running musical on Broadway closed. Um, this is to say nothing of other shows which closed. I mean, Aladdin, I think, closed uh, prematurely. A show called Ain't, uh, Ain't Too Proud, which is about the Temptations, um, which was, um, you know, it, it garnered its stars, um, Tony uh, Awards, and um, it was a very a, a hit. Um, that closed. So, you know, but yet you see people like... Um, uh, what's his name? Harvey Firestein, I want to say his name is. Um, who people will, will know if they've seen Independence Day. He's like he's like the guy that talks like this. He's got the really gravelly voice, you know. Um, but he's like, you know, Broadway is doing it right. They're doing it right by doing all of this. And, um, you know, I don't know if you're doing it right if your shows are closing and people are complaining about how woke they are. So um, maybe there is a sea change. Um, things are changing, but I mean, I don't I don't know. And at this point, I'm not sure that I, I, I care very much uh, if, I, I, you know, if, if it if it dies, it dies. The only the only issue is that um, there's just nowhere. I can't think of anywhere else, really, that has the sort of the branding of New York, the the the, the luster, the allure of New York, the you know, the the culture is so deeply embedded. And that's one of the reasons that I, I oppose the lockdowns and the shutdowns initially. I said, guys, you know, are you going to tell me that liquor stores are more essential to New York City than Broadway and the theater? People people come from all over the world to to make it as performers or to see the work that these performers do. I mean, it's I mean, the arts are a big business and they're a big draw to the city. And yet you allow these bureaucrats and these politicians to tell you that you're not essential. And I, 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 I'll, I'll never forget how they just they kind of just gave up on that. Meanwhile, around the country, right, you had salon owners, barbers, restaurateurs, gym owners who were fighting their governments tooth and nail to stay open. But these pretentious artists, um, you know, on on, you know, on Broadway, who, by the way, you know, they're they have their houses out, you know, or their nice brownstone apartments in Brooklyn. They're they're collecting checks, royalty checks from their original Broadway cast recordings. They're getting residuals from the TV work that they've done, or they're still getting to do TV, as a matter of fact. Um, 
but the people who still want to work um, across the country, they, they, you know, they, they denigrated. Um, so part of me, you, people, <laughs> I make this joke where people say, well, you're, you're just, it's just sour grapes for you. And I say, well, yes, it is, but I'm, but I'm washing it down with some sweet, sweet schadenfreude, um, watching you all just destroy yourselves um, with your, with your own ignorance. So I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to catastrophize and say that Broadway is dead, but um, it definitely has taken a hit. And, you know, and I've had many, many people message me and say, I'll never visit any of these theaters again. Um, I mean, people young and old, right? So, I mean, young people, those have been the most crushing messages. People who have been, who've trained since they were three and dance and, you know, or they're 19, they're 20 now. And they, they, the, you know, they're the kind of people that you want in the industry who are hardworking, they're dedicated, they're passionate, um, they're smart, they're disciplined, and they've been shut out and, um, and they're distraught and they're depressed and, um, they they're they're just jaded now so i don't know if it's going to die but i think a lot of damage uh multi-generational damage has been done and it, maybe it won't show up immediately but maybe over the long term um it's it it, it will just you know it will you know death by a thousand cuts over time and uh, i mean you you are seeing people in cities like nashville for instance um begin to say, we're sick of this stuff. We want to create something new out here. So maybe um, over time that the brain drain from, um, from New York City will, will create um, opportunities in other cities across the country. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Yeah, maybe maybe it maybe it is Nashville, but and I I don't know if Broad, Broadway is dead and I don't know what the next um, iteration is, but we're gonna need some sort of fundamental sort of counter-revolutionary cultural and economic shift. There's gonna be different models for thinking about things. And this I sort of want to wrap up on this question that I definitely don't have an answer for. And it, it starts with uh, my wife and I, Terry, just got back from Belgrade, Serbia, where we were giving a series of talks. And I was reminded of a, a mini documentary that we made before the end of the world, um, working with um, a historian in Belgrade who was trying to explain to the Serbian people why Tito was such a bad guy. and and. Um, you know, Tito was unlike Stalin and Mao. Um, Tito has gotten away with um, a little bit of uh, historical revisionism because he's he's viewed as the good dictator, right? He's he was the good socialist, and of course, it's not true at all. He just had uh, Yugoslavia had a smaller population, so he murdered less people either by his policies or explicitly. But in that process of uncovering all of that. Um, there, the, this, this academic that we were working with pointed out that the first thing that Tito did when he took power is that he, he went after the artists. He, he would jail the playwrights and the novelists and the actors and anybody that, that would be considered in the, in the artistic community. And this is a pattern that, that you can now see every time authoritarians take over because artists are free thinkers. Artists are, are willing to push against, back against the um, narrative. And I, I thought that was always true, but now you, you called it a cult. Um, I, I guess I would call it a religion, which is kind of the same thing where, where the, the so-called artistic community in the United States doesn't think for themselves. They, they march lockstep like zombies. Why, why, why is that? Because I, I just, I've always taken as an article of faith that that creative types are going to be the first to question authority, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, you know, it's it's been one of the most um, amazing things to watch um, personally. Um, I think part of the the reason is that you people who 
maybe have more conservative or more libertarian beliefs, I mean, maybe more right-leaning beliefs, I, I tend to find they, that they are more practical people, they're more pragmatic. And so if you're talking about the, the arts, right, you're talking about a career where it's really difficult to, you know, raise a family and buy property and, you know, have stocks and investments and save up for retirement when you don't know where your next job is going to be. And you don't know, you know, what your, you know, your, your schedule is erratic. I mean, as an actor, you know, you, you, you get a gig and you go out of town for, you know, four weeks, eight weeks or whatever. Um, or even if you're in a long running show, it could close tomorrow at any time. If you're in a successful, uh, a successful series, it could be canceled at any time, you know, so there's no stability there. And um, so there's a level of practicality. I think people just say the kind of nope out of it. And, uh, and they say, you know, I don't really want to do this. Um, I think, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson explains this very well in terms of the sort of um, uh, constitutional differences between people who lead more conservative and people who lead more liberal. And, um, you know, in terms of openness and, um, and, the ability to generate ideas and these kinds of things that, you know, more liberal minded people tend to, to wind up in these kinds of careers where, um, you know, I always say that if I were to start a theater company, I, I'd want a conservative person to run it because they can keep the kids in line and I can focus on performing and, you know, they'll be more market oriented and set boundaries, be more um, industrious and enterprising and have a stronger business sense probably and be able to, um, you know, set parameters more easily. Um, there's also a big hostility um, I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, again, after Trump was elected, and uh, I think maybe the summer of 2018 or so, I, I unregistered from the Democrat Party. Um, I said, these people are insane. I can't, I just, I can't do it anymore. And um, I, hadn't, I hadn't told anybody because, you know, you, you, you know, you have to work. And, uh, you, you know, but that's the thing, because there's, there's such extreme hostility against um, anyone who thinks differently. There was a guy I was rehearsing for a concert in New York and uh, he were on a break and he goes off on this rant. And uh, at one point he goes, and then there's these brain dead independents. I don't know what they're thinking. I'm thinking to myself, well, they're thinking that's why they're independent, you asshole. And, but, you know, and it's just, it's bizarre because, and nothing to me exemplifies the disconnect even more than when I was doing a show in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was around the time of the 2016 election. And, you know, in, in rehearsals, it would be like, uh, you know, I was on Facebook and I told my friends that if any of them voted for Trump, they can unfriend me now and racist this and racist that. And meanwhile, I'd be, you know, lifting weights with, you know, and the guys, the, the white guys at the YMCA, and they were talking about the election. And you know what they were talking about? The economy and jobs and taxes. But then the very first person who ever told me he was voting for Trump was the black barber that that, that that theater hired to to cut our hair. And him and his friend were sitting there. I mean, this guy is a son of a Jamaican uh, farmer who had you know no education, but worked hard and could do math. That's what he told me. And he was talking about how under Barack Obama, and again, I had heard this from other people, you know, his, his um, business regulations made it very difficult for entrepreneurs and, and all the red tape. And this Jamaican barber, you know, was, was just like, who was brilliant, by the way, he was like, he's going to make it so we can make some more money, man. Like, yeah, I'm voting for Trump. And so it's, again, they're talking about the economy and, uh, but you go into rehearsal and it's all about racism and all this other stuff. So, you know, so there's a couple of forces at play. I think there's sort of psychological differences, um, that draw people to the arts. There's a level of, um, pragmatism that keeps, um, you know, more, I guess, uh, conservative minded people out of the arts. And, um, but also there's the hostility, the political hostility. I mean, uh, the great composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim once said that, uh, you know, he's happy that he's in a profession or a, an industry that has no Republicans in it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if, if the Republican party is the party of rich white men, don't you want their money? I mean, I remember I was, uh, you know, there was a theater in D.C., as a matter of fact, that the Shakespeare Theater, and they, you know, I had a good relationship, had a good relationship with them. And they they went to New York, the new artistic director went uh, went to New York City and gathered a bunch of actors around that they wanted to form relationships with. And it was hilarious because everyone else is talking about, um, you know, I mean, this was also uh, soon after the, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh fiasco. 
And person after person was like, I, I can't believe what's going on in this country right now. And, you know, and I'm a woman and I want to do this and I'm a minority, da, 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 da. And I was the only person who was like, so I want to do this kind of work and I'm good at this. And I want to do, uh, you know, I want to focus on, I want to play great roles in the canon and challenge myself as an actor. And I chilled the room at one point when I said, when I paraphrased Michael Jordan and I said, you know, well, Republicans buy tickets too. They're not trying to hear any of that. They didn't want to hear any of it at all. I mean, it was, it's insane to me. And um, so, you know, the, the, to come back to your question, I think there's just a huge, um, any, any artist, any actor, any performer who doesn't toe the quote unquote progressive line knows that if they say anything, if they, if they say, I don't know, I'm not really sure about the whole climate crisis thing, or I'm not, you know, or they push back against, um, you know, uh, feminist dogma, if they, if they talk about, um, you know, or, or trans dogma now, queer, you know, queer theory, all this other stuff, they know that they're, that they'll jeopardize their careers. They know that they might even destroy their careers. I mean, there's, there's a whole cadre of um, conservative actors who, whose name I can't even mention because it's like a fight club, right? You can't talk about it because they know that um, they, they damage their prospects for employment. So the, so it's not that they're, they're not free thinkers. They're free thinkers on certain things. Although, you know, it's funny because they, 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 they think they're on the vanguard of change and progress with their ideas about gender and lot. I'm like, dude, this is like, <laughs> they did this in Germany, you know, a century ago, you know, Greek Roman empire, late stages, nothing is, you know, like Thomas Sowell said, nothing is older than the idea that something is new. So they, they, they think that they're all, you know, super duper progressive and, and, and revolutionary. And yet when the state told them that they're not essential, they should close down and, and, you know, and, and bow at the, uh, at the behest of these pharmaceutical giants, they fell right in line. And, um, you know, it's, it's insane to me. So, but what I say is that, uh, I think that people who aren't uh, on that side of the spectrum are beginning to see the importance of culture. And that's, I think that's one of my big messages now is that, uh, you know, please get skin in the game or find and support heterodox artists, independent artists, um, you know, even in your own lives, if, if that's not your thing, create your own work, you know, if, if it's a, a short little poem or a doodle on, um, on the margins of your notes or something, you know, or go, go to your local playhouse, go support the arts, go support artists, and um, don't support artists that hate you. Um, but, um, you know, we, there are people out there that, that see what's going on and, um, and that don't, that don't hate you, even if they disagree with you. Um, and uh, they, we need your patronage, you know, and, um, and that, that's, that's my message now is that uh, more, you know, libertarian minded, more conservative minded people, um, they need to really get some skin in the game and start creating their own institutions and, and build uh, and build up the arts. Um, and, and it's, you know, we can focus on economics and policy and all these other things, which are, which are important, but you know, if you understand the abstract benefits of, say, religion and religious belief, then you also could understand the abstract benefits of having a rich, artistic and creative life. And um, you need to understand that. And, and it's part of a well-rounded life and a healthy culture to have a strong, robust, um, um, strong and robust arts, institu arts institutions uh, that we can be proud of. Uh, extremely well said. And, and as someone that used to do policy and used to do politics, I'm I'm very much focused on culture because I think politics is downstream of culture and and we our side broadly speaking as you're defining it has has not been as great we've maybe ignored it dismissed it um, turned off by it for all the reasons that you described in the culture but um, one artist that we might support is you and you have this really cool new set of projects that you're doing. You may or may not ever get to go back to Broadway. You may or may not ever get to go back to acting, but give us uh, give us a rundown of, of Clifton Duncan 2.0. Uh, well, it's funny because I say now that if I can't be in the industry, then I'll just need to be bigger than the industry. I think we live at a time where um, the, you know, it can be one person who, becomes a Tim Pool or a Joe Rogan or something like that and kind of builds their own platform. And um, it's it's really remarkable because, you know, I have a YouTube channel called, you know, it's just Clifton Duncan. People can go there. Um, you know, I have some Shakespeare sonnets posted there. Uh, and 
and um, one video of me singing some Rodgers and Hammerstein. And the response to those has been really overwhelmingly positive. And, and that says to me that there is, you know, there's this idea, um, especially in the deep blue metros of New York and L.A., that, um, you know, flyover country, so to speak, or the South or whatever, um, or Red America is a bunch of unsophisticated rubes. And I say all the time, like, guys, you don't need to have an Ivy League degree or whatever. You don't need to be even... Uh, you know, necessarily that articulate or even that smart or, you know, to to know how something makes you feel and how something affects you. And, um, you know, the the gift of artists is that we re we live in the realm of emotions, right? We 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 bypass um, your sort of your, your logic and we get right to your feelings. And um, what I what I have loved and my big discovery is that there are lots of people out there who say, yeah, you know, I love poetry. I love Shakespeare. I, you know, I, you know, I love Broadway or they'll say, I don't care about any of those things, but if you're doing them, I'll support it. <laughs> I'll, I'll support it. And um, and and, you know, now you don't need the sort of big machinery, right? You don't need I don't need a publicist. I don't need uh, an agent to kind of field, um, uh, you know, my my messages. I can I can directly communicate with my with my audience and uh, and respond to them. Uh, I mean, you go to a lot of these theater companies and they'll have the comments turned off on their YouTube videos. Like, guys, that's like the first rule of the Internet. You don't turn off the comments. You have this this wonderful apparatus, right, where you get this uh, instant direct feedback from people who are often smarter than the producers themselves and the writers themselves who have great ideas and who, you know, who have all kinds of feedback. And you have this, um, you have these financial structures in place now, you know, crowdfunding, donations, all these kinds of things where people can give you money directly. And um, so channels going well right now. Um, I have the Clifton Duncan podcast where I've spoken to all kinds of really fascinating people from, uh, you know, Victor Davis Hansen was on and uh, we talked about the importance of Greek classical literature. Um, Douglas Murray, uh, the Dreamboat was on, and we talked about all kinds of um, artsy fartsy stuff. I've had on, um, you know, popular YouTubers like the Critical Drinker. We talk about, you know, what happened to the movies. Um, smaller YouTubers. We talked. Uh, I talked to this one guy called the Fourth Age, who we talked about the death of the masculine hero, and how it's and the and the broader implications of society. Um, I spoke to Gina Carano, who was fired from The Mandalorian, and the show has not recovered from it since. Um, so, you know, Dean Kane, wonderful actor who uh, people will know as uh, Superman from Lois and Clark. So all kinds of um, great people. And I think it's sort of raising awareness of the importance of art. And people are really enjoying that. Um, I just launched a Substack uh, that I, I call the State of the Arts, um, which, uh, like the podcast, uh, lives at the nexus of art, entertainment, culture and society. And, um, you know, I just had my, my first uh, uh, post there, which people are people are enjoying. There's something wrong in the arts is what I called it. Um, and would I, in my dream, uh, I would love to, you know, do content creation full time because I see a lot of other people who are trying to, you know, they're trying to create culture, but they, they don't really have the chops and they haven't spent their career doing it. And they don't have the aesthetic sense, the training, um, the, you know, and the, the talent, you know, if I'm being very honest with you, um, that, that I do. And so what I want is to create, um, you know, I mean, I have this idea in my head, you know, this first time I'm saying it uh, to you, but uh, the idea of a solo show, there's a, there's a show called Thurgood, which uh, Lawrence Fishburne did about Thurgood Marshall. And I'm looking at Thomas Sowell and I'm like, dude, wouldn't it be cool to do something similar to that? And, uh, you know, to perform it around the country. I mean, that, that, that could be a brilliant, brilliant show uh, if the right person could put it together. But, you know, I need, I need time to, and, and money and resources to do research and, and be able to focus on that. I want to do albums and write books and all kinds of stuff. And then later on, produce my own shows. And, um, you know, and I'm slowly gathering, uh, assembling Avengers who are also in the arts and, you know, set designers and producers and, and scene uh, painters and lighting designers, um, you know, writers. So people are coming together. We're figuring stuff out, but, um, you know, but we need, uh, we need support and all, all the other good stuff um, to, to really put out work that is, um, that is, that has weight and gravitas and substance to it. And uh, from people who actually, you know, live their lives in those fields. So that's sort of what I'm, uh, I shouldn't say sort of, that's what I'm working on right now and, and moving towards. And um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going on intuition. Uh, like I said before, I'm a dumb artist who has zero business sense. So I'm, I'm learning a lot, but um, you know, it's, 
it, it's also freeing because I, I don't, I no longer feel confined. Yeah, I, I don't have to bite my tongue anymore, and um, and you know, watch what I say out of fear of being canceled. And people envy me for that. Um, it's come at a cost, definitely, but uh, at, at the same time, maybe this is like sort of the, the beginning of something that could be new and wonderful and fantastic. You you give new meaning to the phrase creative destruction. And I, I love it. That you, you didn't want to get screwed over, but damn it, you're going to turn something more beautiful out of it. And that's that's pretty cool. This has been a fantastic conversation. And uh, I want everyone to check out Clifton Duncan 2.0. Uh, and it's an honored just to meet you for the first time. Hey, man, it's been a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.